folks to have a seat whenever you're ready. Thank you guys for being here. Uh, welcome. If this is your first time, uh, Merry Christmas from all of us that resonate. Uh, like, again, my name is Josh. I'm the pastor here. Uh, I'm going to wear the Santa hat for the, the remainder of the program. Um, buckle up. Uh, we've got an awesome sort of journey to go on this morning. Uh, there's just, there's so much. I love the story of Christmas. Uh, it's one of my favorite times of year, and it's also just one of my favorite stories. Um, but along with that, it's a story that's been told so many times that by the time we reach sort of adulthood, that story, just it, it's, it's lost its luster. Uh, there's a Zen principle uh, where they say to hold on to some story. So, so basically, that would be like, like in Christianity, something that's close or akin to that would be binding and loosening, which means that like, what they believe is the more you tell a story, the less and less true it becomes to you, uh, which is kind of true. If you, if you think about any great experience you've had, if you've been on like a really stellar trip or you, uh, uh, you, you just had an amazing experience, the more you share that experience, the more you kind of get distant from it, the more it becomes more of just a story and an, than the event. It becomes a narrative rather than the story. It becomes a thing that we use to present and describe the event that happened uh, before. But I think you can hold on to the story of Christmas in a different way and still hear it and share it tons and tons of times because the whole deal with the story of Christmas is that it is inviting us to understand that there's an end to the darkness. So, we're going to go all over the place. I'm going to talk about the, or, the origin story of Santa. Uh, we're going to talk about the Celtic tree of life. We're going to talk about redefining the Son of God. Uh, we're going to talk about Fox versus CNN. That'll get me in trouble. And uh, we'll talk about tons of stuff. So let me pray, uh, and we'll get started this morning. Lord God, thank you. Uh, thank you for this space. Thank you for, thank you for your Son. We can get so focused on, on this season um, and the craziness of, of family and gifts and, uh, and, and the sorrow of maybe not family and gifts. It's just there's so much baggage that goes along with this holiday, Lord, but I, I thank you so much um, for the story of you breaking through our darkness um, and coming as a vulnerable child, uh, something that you, you actually trusted us to entrust, trusted us to actually take care of your son. And so I thank you for that trust. I thank you for this story. Um, Lord, I just pray for our time this morning. Amen. Uh, so let's just start here. Let's read through the story of Christmas. Now, the, the important part to remember about Christmas is uh, most of the stories we hear about Christmas, especially on a Christmas Eve context or like, you know, that classic pastor Christmas sermon, it's a mashup. Uh, so there are two Christmas stories. There's a Christmas story in Matthew and there's a Christmas story in Luke, and they're vastly different. Uh, in fact, some of them contradict each other. And so what happens is we've got like sort of the magi in one over here, and then you know, we've got the shepherds in one over here. So when we sing songs like the first Noel, they're like, well, we've got to have both the magi in that, so we mash them together. This is the nativity scene. The nativity scene is a mashup of something that's completely untrue. There are not magi there. There are not donkeys there. That, that all happened, but it happened at different times, and then we mashed it all up. So when we sing the first Noel, what we're really doing is like pulling from this scripture and pulling from this scripture. There's a beauty to that, but there's also a reason that there are two separate narratives that there are two separate stories for two separate groups of people that were written directly to them. So, we didn't sing the first Noel this morning, and we won't be doing that. No, I'm just kidding. Well, while I'm on the, while I'm on the, um, the rant of debunking uh, Christmas songs, that awful Mary Did You Know song, there's a whole song that Mary sings in which she outlines what Jesus is going to do. So, Mary did know. Anyway, we're moving on. Um, the Christmas story... 
uh, goes in two different paths. Uh, and so this morning, I want to focus on just the Christmas story in Luke, uh, and there's a pretty distinct reason for that, because I love the story of the angels and the shepherds and all that good stuff, and that's in that version. So let's read through uh, the story of Luke. It's a little bit lengthy, but it's the Christmas story, and it's the Bible, and we have to do it. Here we go. Uh, Jesus' birth. In those days, Caesar Augustus declared that everyone throughout the empire should be enrolled in the tax list. Now, hold on to this stuff. I'm not going to unpack with, like line by line like I usually do, but hold on to a couple things. Hold on to the empire and hold on to Caesar Augustus and the census. Uh, the first enrollment occurred when Quintus governed Syria. Everyone went to their own cities to be enrolled. Since Joseph belonged to David's house and family line, that's King David, uh, he went up from the city of Nazareth in Galilee to David's city called Bethlehem in Judea. He went to be enrolled together with Mary, who was promised to him in marriage and who was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for Mary to have her baby. She gave birth to her firstborn child, a son, wrapped him snugly, and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the guest room. Nearby shepherds were living in the fields, guarding their sheep at night. The Lord's angel stood before them. The Lord's glory shone all around them, and they were terrified. The angel said, don't be afraid. Look, I bring news to you, wonderful, joyous news for all people. Your Savior is born today in David's city. He is Christ the Lord. This is a sign for you. You will find a newborn baby wrapped snugly and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great assembly of the heavenly forces was with the angel praising God, and they said, Glory to God in heaven and on earth, peace among those whom he favors. When the angels returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, Let's go right now to Bethlehem and see what's happened. Let's confirm what the Lord has revealed to us. They went quickly and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. When they saw this, they reported, Uh, what they had been told about this child. Everyone who heard it was amazed at what the shepherds told them. Now, here's here's what I want to really bust apart here. Uh, This is a narrative. This is one narrative of the Christmas story. And what I really want to get to the heart of this morning, and it'll be the whole sort of topic uh, that we'll unpack, is the difference between a narrative and a story. Uh, the book of narrative, which is an actual book, and it explores all sorts of different narratives and counter-narratives, dominant narratives, all that kind of good nerdy stuff, uh, defines a narrative as a way that we present a story. And a story is an event. So a story is true, right? We've got a story. Uh, The way we present that is actually up to us. That's where our sort of story and narrative comes in. So in this narrative, in Luke, there are no magi that come. There's no wise men, no we three kings, no nothing. It's just to the shepherds. Why? Why is that? Well, because the book of Luke and the book of Matthew were both written at different times, and they both served a need for the direct listeners and readers that they were writing for. In the period of Luke, they were under a different empire, so uh, a different Caesar, same empire. Uh, But we see right at the beginning of this, at the very beginning of the book of Luke, we see this passage. And it basically says... uh, to uh, the most exalted, excellent Theophilus. And what that means, we don't know exactly who that is, but what we know is that that word actually means lover of God. Uh, But the the phrase most excellent tells us that they were probably talking to some sort of a Roman official. Now, if you are Luke, the author of this gospel, uh, and you are writing to a Roman official, and you begin with the story of a census and then a new king being born, this is dangerous, dangerous stuff. 
And in the time of Luke, what, what Luke's readers needed to hear, this is the period where they're under this guy named Nero. And Nero is not a great emperor in a long line of not-so-great guys. But Nero is one of the worst. What happens is this huge fire bursts out in Rome, uh, and they need someone to blame it on. Nero needs a scapegoat, because if not, he's going to be held responsible for this massive fire, uh, and he, someone will try and usurp him. He'll lose power. And this whole emperor thing is like a giant Game of Thrones-esque kind of scenario. People are always trying to kill the emperor and become in power. So Nero goes, who can we blame for this fire? And he looks at this new sect of Judaism. These Jews had moved down uh, into the Roman region in a swamp region. They weren't even allowed in like the real city center of Rome. They had to live in a swamp outside of the town, which ironically could not catch fire because it's in a swamp. So he looks at one of the only areas of the city that was untouched by the fire, and he says, surely we can blame it on them because they were untouched. So it must have been them. And so what happened is Nero sends out all of his Roman guards, and they go knocking on the doors of the Christian community, these Jesus followers. They're followers of the way right now. They're still a sect of Judaism. They haven't separated fully yet, but there's a huge tension, uh, and the the traditional Jewish people are not really liking the Jesus-following people. Uh, But they're still in a family. They're still together. But there's tension. There's enormous amounts of tension. So when the Roman guards come and they start knocking in the Jewish center, in that center of town, the Jewish people are all too happy to say, oh, yeah, I know where the Christians are. The Christians, these Jesus follower people, they're over here. And then what would happen is they would take these Christians and they would burn them, right? Fire for fire, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, all that good stuff. They would take them and they would burn them at the stake. And the only way you could get out of being burned at the stake is if you could produce another Christian. So if someone came to you and they said, are you a Christian? We're going to take you. You'd say, no, I'm not a Christian. But Bob, my next-door neighbor, he is a Christian. And so it was pulling neighbor against neighbor, family member against family member. It was tearing this community apart. And so what's the Christmas story that this community that's having to turn brother against brother, sister against sister, needs to hear is a story where the angels appear and they instantly tell them where to find this Christ. You see in the other story with the Magi, it's revealed with a star and they follow the star and the star moves very slowly and it actually moves towards Herod's palace, and then it has to backtrack back again. It's a long reveal. That's because Matthew's audience didn't need that immediacy, didn't need that Christ in a manger with the directions to go directly there. It's a narrative. It's a narrative. And there can be tons of different narratives. There can be one story, right, and a lot of different takes on it. That's where we get to the Fox and CNN portion of our program. If you turn on Fox News, you're going to hear the same take. Or there's going to be a story, right? And there's one take on it. Turn on CNN. There's going to be a drastically different take to it. It's the narrative that changed, but the story somewhere in there in that Venn diagram of crazy is, is the truth. Somewhere in there, that story still exists, but we give it a different narrative. So here's in a good narrative, there's always a hero, a support, so that would be like your, uh, your Samwise Gamgee, right? The, this support fellow who's going to support the hero on their journey. And there's always a villain, and there's always a guide. Now, we have bought into the, the version of story in our sort of American dream-esque reality that we need to be the hero all the time. That our role in our story is hero. We're a hero, you're a hero, you're a hero, you're a hero. Go back to any movie, go back to any story, especially like a movie, and look at the hero's journey and then decide if you really want to be the hero. Because most of the time, it's 90 minutes of pain and then five minutes of redemption at the end. (laughs) Really? This is the truth, and this is a really cool thing. You don't want to be the hero, you want to be the guide. You do not want to be Luke Skywalker, you want to be Yoda. 
right? You want to be Ben Kenobi. You do not want to be the person that's going through the, all the loss and all the pain. You want to be the person that someone wants to find and find because you have a way. Find because you have a path that you can send them on. Our ultimate goal as Christ followers should not be to be heroes. It should be to be a guide. Look at the way that Jesus moves through the world. If you read through the Gospels, he's not really playing the hero. He's playing the guide, and he's making all of us the hero. The whole story of the scripture is not that Moses is the hero. It's that Moses is the guide, and the hero ends up being the whole nation of Israel. Somewhere along the lines, we took this huge, huge gospel that's supposed to be for us, for all people, and we pulled it in here, and we said, no, this is just a personal thing for me to make my life better. And both are true, right? Those are two different narratives, and both have their place, just like Matthew has his place and Luke has his place. But I think the one that's being pushed off into the background is the story of us. It's the story of God being the guide and us us collectively being the hero and playing the support for each other. Because here's the thing. If we always try and play the hero, you're going to be the villain in someone else's story. It's just inevitable. Your version of hero might be their version of villain. That's the power of narrative. Here's a crazy thing. When you look at the, uh, the way that Hitler, Adolf Hitler, was able to actually like, like coax people into believing his mission, what did he do? The number one thing he did, and he just did it with story. He just did it with narrative, which is insane. He split the world with a microphone. He caused the entire world to go to war just by using words, just by using narrative, just by using story. And what he did is he painted a certain group as these are the enemy, we are the hero, now let's all support, and I am your guide. He created an enemy, a scapegoat. Same thing that happened with Nero. Create an enemy, create a scapegoat, create a common thing that we can all go towards. But look at this. Winston Churchill uses the same exact method to defeat Hitler. He says, no, 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 we collectively are the hero. He really is the villain. Now let's all support and let's go. They're using the same tools. But here's the deal. The person that's going to win is always going to figure out how to tell the truer narrative, the better narrative. The better narrative always looks more like the story. We cannot confuse the narrative for the story, but it always looks like the story. We need to learn how to choose better narratives and better stories. Take a look at this story. This is out of, um, uh, I think, the book of John. Um, and uh, sorry, can we go? Yeah, beautiful, John 8. Um, this, is, uh, this is Jesus, and uh, this is the famous cast the first stone story. Let's, let's look at how he becomes Yoda in this scenario. Uh, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives uh, at dawn, and he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, and the law of Moses commanded uh, to stone such women. Now, what do you say? Now, let's just pause right there. The law that comes out of Deuteronomy or Leviticus, the law says both men and women can be stoned for this. Uh, If the woman is caught into adultery, there would have to be a man who is also caught in adultery, and note that they're not dragging the man out too. They're just simply dragging the the person that doesn't have the same amount of rights as the other one. They're dragging the person that is most vulnerable out into the street. Uh, They were using this question as a trap in order to, uh, to have a basis for accusing him. Next slide there, please. There we go. And Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Now, this is like classic, like, Western 
like just sort of tip the hat and I've got the gun holster here and he's just down in the dirt and he's just riding, right? It's like this like power move, like what's he, what's he doing? And it's always so weird when you read this, you're like, what's he writing? And scholars have spent way too much wasted time trying to figure out what Jesus was writing. Uh, there's a couple theories. Uh, he was either drawing like in the sand because a lot of people couldn't even write at that point. It would take a very long time. Most people could barely write their own name. Uh, so he's probably drawing a figure of some kind uh, or, and this is really cool, this is the one I tend to believe, uh, in Roman culture, if you were taken to court and you were sentenced, the judge would write down the sentence before he would dole it out. So just picture, put that lens on. It could be a number of things, but put that lens on for a second. He's writing a sentence, and so what the Pharisees are seeing and the, the teachers of the day, they're going, we're going to get him because he is about to lay on judgment, and there's no right way out of this scenario. That's the narrative they want. They want Jesus to fall into that narrative. So he gets down and he's, he's drawing on the ground. And then he says, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. This guy is a G. <laughs> he, at this, those who heard and began to go away one by one, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing still there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. The way Jesus was able to win in that scenario, which was an unwinnable scenario, it was a trap. They had him. If he said no, just outright, they'd be like, well, he's not following the law. And if he said yes, it was actually against Roman law to carry out an execution without a proper Roman trial. So now Jesus is making up his own rules, and he's gone rogue, and he wants to be king. So now the Roman Empire will come, and he will, they'll slay him, right? So Jesus has to find a third path through this. He can't use the narratives of right or wrong. He has to find a way to show them and twist the story and replace the story with a better one, a better narrative. And he presents that by telling them, okay, yeah, which one of you doesn't have sin? And once you figure that out, go ahead. Have at you. And it's funny, the older ones instantly know. They're like, okay, no, I'm out. <laughs> and then the younger ones stick around longer because they're like, no, I mean, I'm, I'm still good, I'm good. And then they, they slowly trickle off and they're gone. But he tells a better story. He flipped the narrative. And this is a common theme with this Jesus guy. He's always flipping the narrative. In fact, from his birth, the very story of Christmas, that story that we read right at the beginning there, that is a counter-narrative, meaning it undoes an extremist point of view, or it undoes the dominant narrative. A counter-narrative is something that undoes the dominant narrative, which basically means when they clash and when they come together, the dominant narrative is exposed, and the counter-narrative can now take over. So basically, in this day, for, for the whole Christmas story, we have to look at the similarities here and the names that Jesus was called. See, he's going to be called Son of God. Well, there's already a Son of God. In this day, everyone knew who the Son of God was. That was Caesar. Caesar was known as Son of God. Caesar also had another couple titles you might find interesting. Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace. These were all names for this Caesar guy. And we give the Romans a lot of credit. We've all seen the Monty Python sketch, what did the Romans ever give us? But the whole deal is they actually they had a fine-tuned, violent approach to dominating the entire world. So this Prince of Peace, or Pax Romana, which is going to be like, like world peace, 
this world peace that's going to be brought about, this hundred years of Augustus that you can study history and look at where they claim perfect peace is not perfect peace. It's because they're dominating and colonizing other cultures. They're using violence to break free. So when the Christians are reading this, or even more when the Roman official is reading this, they're reading this and going, oh my gosh, they're stealing our narrative, and now they're using it to tell a different story. What God does is he takes the narrative, this terrible narrative of slavery, oppression, murder, burning people at the stake, this empire that rules with power and fear. You have to remember the, the, the time Jesus comes along, this Caesar Augustus, he's one of the most terrifying emperors Rome had ever seen. In fact, he's one of the, he's the first. The whole, the whole thing before this is all Mark Antony, A2, Brute, all that stuff happened. And then you have Caesar Augustus who decides we can expand this empire more rapidly if we can be more aggressive. And he was crazy nervous about his power. Everyone was. Herod, who's like kind of the local governor there, was brutal. And he's the guy in the Christmas story with the Magi who's like, okay, tell me where that king is because i got to get him, right? He's always trying to kill. Caesar Augustus actually said this about Herod. He said, I would rather be one of Herod's pigs than his family members. The reason for that was because Herod was known to kill off family in a very Game of Thrones-esque style. He killed off his two favorite sons because he thought they were going to come to power. He killed off his favorite wife because he thought that she was going to come to power. But... He was also uh, forced to be a pious Jewish man, so his pigs were safe. So that's the whole deal there. So it's an incredibly vicious and violent narrative. And what God wants to do when he comes in this Christmas story, when he reveals himself, when the incarnation happens, he's pointing to all of that and he says, look, that's a terrible narrative. But I'm going to take it and tell a better story. It's redefining who the Son of God is. And it's saying there's one name that Jesus is called that Caesar never had, that Caesar never gets. And that's Emmanuel. That's God with us. Because Caesar isn't with you. You're with Caesar. It's God with us. But here's the problem. We've taken that God with us, us, and we've really turned it into a narrative of God with me. God is with me, not with us. I'm the hero of my own story. But that's so, so... So wrong, so twisted. We changed it around. So I want to tell two stories today, two icons, actually, that we have begun to take from us to me and that we're telling a really poor version of. Um, there are these two guys right here. Can we go to the next slide there, Sean? Uh, I drew these two, just so you know. Um, we're going to talk about, uh, well, first we're going to talk about this jolly little fellow over here, Santa, and then we're going to talk about uh, the Christmas tree. Uh, the fire hazard that we all invite into our homes. That's what we're going to talk about. Uh, and I, what I want to do is I want to redefine the narrative because the narratives of these two characters or icons have become extremely watered down to the point that, like, why, why do we even have them anymore? So first, let's go with uh, old jolly Santa Claus. So the person you know is Santa Claus uh, actually started in a Coca-Cola ad. And actually, it was, before, it, was the, it was the night before Christmas, that famous poem describes Santa for the very first time, who comes from a, a saint way, way long ago in the year 300 um, named St. Nicholas in modern-day Turkey. Uh, but St. Nicholas did not look like this guy at all. Do we have that uh, Coca-Cola ad? Here he is. Here's the original Coca-Cola ad. Um, it, it pictures a wonderfully jovial, warm, rosy-cheeked Santa uh, that is 
drinking a lot of that Coca-Cola. Uh, and and he's, he's plump, he's great, uh, he's warm, he's friendly. Uh, and he had always been associated with Christmas. You have Father Christmas, you had Sinterklaas, which was over in uh, Dutch, which is the only time of year I get to use that, uh, that name um, in my Dutch. Uh, but Sinterklaas is this tall, thin guy that wears a cap and carries a cane. Uh, and then Father Christmas is more of an elfish creature. Uh, and so what, what the Coca-Cola guy said is like, well, let's make Santa more appealing. Both of those are kind of cold. Let's put them together, and let's form this new sort of icon. So for the very first time, we have a warm, inviting Santa, the kind of man in which you would like uh, to jump up and ask him what you'd like for Christmas. This is the Santa that we know. And it's become just so far out of hand. St. Nicholas was an amazing man. We'll get to him in just a minute. Uh, but then from there, the Dutch had this tradition of Sinterklaas. I grew up uh, celebrating Sinterklaas. Sinterklaas is this amazing holiday. Uh, they don't really do... a huge Christmas over there, but they do do Sinterklaas. It's on December 6th, and it, it celebrates the death or the feast of uh, St. Nicholas. And, and what happens is you put your clogs out, and, and you put your clogs out uh, just under the chimney, and when you wake up, there are like gold chocolate coins in there, and you're like, score. Uh, and then I was always like, but I mean, where are the presents? <laughs> but you get, you get the gold chocolate coins, uh, and you celebrate Christmas. There's a whole dark part where there's a guy in blackface, he puts you in a bag, and he smacks you with a twitch if you're bad, but we won't talk about that part. Anyway, the other part is beautiful. It's this beautiful saint uh, who's the patron saint of children, the patron saint of sailors, the patron saint of brewers. He's this gorgeous human being. But when they brought him to America, when the Dutch uh, came over in the 1700s, he gradually got shifted into what we see today, which has gotten just crazy. Let's go to this next slide here. Um, this is an actual school that will train you to become Santa Claus. Uh, there, there is, there's an actual school, and these Santas make an insane amount of money. If you are what they call a real bearded Santa, which means you actually look the part and you have the beard, you can make anywhere from $6,000 to $15,000 in a Christmas season in a mall, just, just in a matter of weeks. Or like, and, and Okay, here's a picture of the, the guys that are uh, just doing their classes, and the Santa, <laughs> they have a full university. Uh, you can go and you learn. Uh, the next slide, please. Uh, I did see if there were careers in the area, because uh, as you saw before, my salary is as such. So I was looking for a Santa uh, career. Looks like there is nothing at this time, so I'll have to wait till next year. Uh, let's go to the next one there. Um, this guy, there, there's a reason that Los Angeles has no Santa jobs available, and it's all because of this man. This man is named Ed Haley, or better known as Santa Ed. If you watch the Gwen Stefani video, the, the Christmas thing she did with Blake Shelton, he's the Santa in that music video. He's the most sought-after Santa in the entire world. And this guy makes over $100,000 a Christmas season. It's crazy. He also runs a rival Santa college called the Santa Conservatory. It's not doing as well, but there it is. Uh, this is the creepy guy that goes to the Santa college. Uh, and he says, make sure both hands are visible at all times. He's holding peppers. And that's cool. Uh, Santa wears white gloves to avoid lawsuits. You can also don't want kids straddling like a horse. And lastly, you got to read kids. Some, some you can wrestle like a bear. Others you have to speak almost in a whisper. Wise words, Kelly Farrell. So how did we get here? Is there a next slide? OK, yeah. This is an entire town in Indiana called Santa Claus, Indiana. It's an entire town with a governor and a post office, but it's legitimately called Santa Claus, Indiana. Now, I Google mapped it just to see if I could get a glimpse of some of the uh, businesses that are here. I couldn't memorize these, mostly because I don't, I don't want these floating around in my head, so I'm going to read them to you. Um, there's Kringle Place, Holiday Foods and Grocery, Chris Kringle Place, 
uh, Santa Claus Family Medicine, Holly Tree Christmas Shop, Santa Claus Castle, Santa Claus Town Hall, Frosty Liquors, uh, Santa's Toys, <laughs> Santa Claus Hardware, Santa Claus uh, Care, which is an LLC, uh, Subway, and uh, Rudolph Lake. This is a screenshot of the actual streets in Santa Claus, uh, Indiana. Can you imagine just, yeah, I live on Tinsel Lane, take a right on Garland. Like, it's a nightmare. All year long, in the middle of July, you're dealing with all of this. This is where we brought this narrative, but thank goodness that there is a different narrative. Thank goodness there is a different story. There's a better narrative to this man that goes far, far deeper uh, than just Santa Claus, Indiana. Basically, St. Nicholas uh, was born uh, in a very wealthy family. From modern terms, he was almost a billionaire. Uh, his family was like very wealthy merchants. And, and St. Nicholas is actually one of the most influential saints of the first century. Think of him as, as influential in that time as St. Francis in the second century. Uh, and St. Nicholas is born to these wealthy merchants. Unfortunately, at a very young age, he loses his parents and he's orphaned. And overnight, Nicholas becomes a billionaire. Uh, Nicholas is a, he's just on fire for God, and so he wants to join the priesthood, he wants to get involved, so he joins at a very early age and shows a lot of promise, so much promise that at age 18, they elect him as bishop. And so he's bishop of this, this town called Meyer, which is present-day Turkey, uh, and, and Nicholas has this enormous passion for people. And this is a really tumultuous time. Uh, this, this is right in between where the Roman Empire is still persecuting Christians and when they're about to adopt it as their official religion. Within the lifespan of St. Nicholas, you go from about 2 million Christ followers to, at the end of his life, 36 million Christ followers, all in a span of a couple years. Because you have to remember the life expectancy back then was around 40. So it's this explosion of the church. And here's St. Nicholas at 18, having to guide his way through. And in the beginning, when they were oppressing him, he turns 18, and he wonders why he gets this job of bishop. And it turns out it's because no one else wanted that job. <laughs> because when they would target the church leaders, and they would persecute them first. So Nicholas gets thrown in jail. He spends a number of years in jail. Finally, Roman Empire comes around. He gets let out, and, and he's there. And he has this enormous passion for taking care of people. So what happens in his city is it's ravaged with poverty, and in that day, if you didn't have enough money, it was this really terrifying and awful, akin to like the sex trafficking trade today, you would have to sell your children into prostitution just to make ends meet. And people were having to do this all over. So what Nicholas did is he said, I have a great deal of money, and so I'm going to go and I'm going to save these poor girls that are getting put in trafficked. And so what he would do in the secret of night, he would bring bags of gold, enough for a dowry, which would be the sum of money that you would pay to get married. Uh, he would bring the, the sum of gold, and he would place it at their doors. And then he would, he would walk away, and no one would ever know it was him. And here's where the legend starts to get crazy. One guy, three daughters, he was going to sell them all off. And, and St. Nicholas each night drops off a bag of gold. Drops off a bag of gold, one daughter saved. Drops off another bag of gold, that daughter saved. And the dad is so grateful. He wants to see who's doing this for his family. And so he stays up all night because he knows someone's dropping these off. But St. Nicholas is wiser than that, and he sees that he's in the window. And so he says, I'm not going to go past. I'll go on the roof, and I'll go in the chimney, and I'll drop the bag through the chimney. Now the legend goes, the bag missed and lands into one of the socks that was warming by the fire. And now you have the legend of St. Nicholas. But here's the amazing thing, and this is historically true, and this is the thing we should hold on to about this wonderful man, is that at the end of St. Nicholas's life, he had helped so many people that he died almost penniless. 
So there is a better narrative. There's a better story. All right, let's turn to our fire hazard Christmas tree. Um, the tree, the tree. Uh, I really question why we bother with this uh, holiday tradition. I do it every year. I'm a sucker for it. But those things are expensive, man. They're like 75 bucks a pop, uh, and they're enormously flammable, like enormously flammable. Uh, I did a little research. From 2012 to 2016, researchers found out that there were around 170 uh, fires per year that were started with the Christmas tree, so around 170 on average per year. That's also akin to 15 deaths and eight injuries per year, just Christmas tree related, and also $12 million in property damage, all because of our little green friend here. So why do we even bother with this? Why is it still a thing? Why are we still concerned about the Christmas tree? Here's the remarkable thing about the Christmas tree, and this is the remarkable thing about how Christmas actually came to being. The tree is responsible for almost every single tradition that we have right now and call Christmas or the Feast of Christmas. You see, back in uh, the year 600, the primary Christian feast was Easter. They weren't even celebrating Christmas. They were just like, yeah, that happens in the summer. It's the birth of God. But we're, we're, we're celebrating on the Julian calendar, so we don't get to it until around springtime or summer. But as they moved north and they got to the Celtic regions, and here's the thing, we owe all of Christmas to the Celts. If it weren't for their festival of the winter solstice, we would not have Christmas in the way that we have it right now. What these Celts would do, and we talked about this before, is they were, they were celebrating the end of the darkest day of the year. And solstice literally translates into sun stands still, because it would be those days where it seemed like, oh my gosh, the sun is winning again. We can go back farming late at night. We can, we can actually live our lives, and we don't have to rely on the stockpile that we had from last winter. And so when these Christians came up to the Celts and they wanted to figure out a way to tell them about Jesus, they stumbled upon this festival and they stumbled upon this really odd tradition that the Celts would do. The Celts believed in this other tree. They called it the uh, Kran Berdach. Uh, and it looks like this. This is the tree of life. And in every town center that the Celts would do a new settlement, they would place a tree of life, a Kran Berdach, in the middle of the, the town center. Basically, it would be there to signify life. It would be there to signify, what, what does a tree give? It gives shelter, it gives shade, it gives fruits. Birds and other creatures make its home in its branches. This is life. And also the duality of life. For the Celts, the tree, which they would call a word called dur, which is where we get the word door, was a doorway to a different world. They believed it to be the ancestors of man. They believed it to be the link between heaven and earth. As the branches went up, so did the roots go down. This was a door to heaven. And so the winter solstice, and this oak tree, and it's very important that it was an oak tree, the oak tree, they would come and they would adorn with lights because they were praying that the light would come back. And not only that, they would put dried fruits into the tree with the expectation of new fruits once this light came back. And so when the Christians get there, they go, oh my goodness, they're doing the Garden of Eden. And they're putting light with expectation of end of darkness. What does this sound like? Oh, this sounds like Christmas. This sounds like incarnation. This sounds like God coming down and coming in. And the reason it was an oak tree, and thank goodness we're not putting oak trees in our living rooms, the reason it's an oak tree is communally they would come around that because they truly believe that the oak tree is where fire came from. And actually, what's really interesting is the oak tree really is a fire hazard because it, it tracks the most lightning because unlike a smooth bark tree, it catches the water in its crevices and its bark actually absorbs water. So it's more likely to get struck by lightning. 
And so in the Celtic legends, they looked at that and they said, this is where fire comes from. We harness fire. That's what gets us through the winter. And so we'll celebrate this great light by adorning this thing with lights. Later on, they change it to the fern tree, which is what we now use, which is what is in your living room probably, which so the deal is fire was always a part of it the whole time, <laughs> right? It was always supposed to catch fire. <laughs> but that's a better story. That's a better narrative. The true story of the Christmas tree unpacks everything. Here's the deal. This is the Christian way. Any, any story that you give dignity to that you give time to is going to unravel before you in new, beautiful ways that you'd never seen. That includes each and every person that you encounter. If you treat them with dignity, with respect, with honor, and you actually pour into their lives, they will unravel, and you will unravel in ways that you never expected were possible. The problem is we took that beautiful picture of community, of, of, of adorning a communal tree, and we put it a fence around it. We put it inside. We put it in our living room. And we do that. I, I'm always fascinated with the, the Christmas story. If you're ever in a Christmas pageant when you're a kid, there's always the role of the innkeeper. There's no innkeeper in, in the Bible. There's no character. And I think it's really, really telling that we created the character of the innkeeper, because the truth is the innkeeper it's not one person, it's all of us. The gospel writer does not name the innkeeper because the innkeeper is all of us. And so when we begin to take this beautiful Christian tradition and we begin to put fences around it, we begin to take it in here, and we say, I'm not going to talk about that ever, or this isn't for other people, it's just me, it's my, I was inherited this, or whatever it is. What we're doing is we're the innkeeper saying there's no room. There's no room. I don't have room for more people in my life that I need to take care of or care for. I don't have room. 2018 was uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt the worst year of my life. Um, I remember waking up at New Year's last year. I went to my sister's in San Francisco, and we woke up, and I, uh, I got to my car, and I'm, I'm walking to the car. We've got a six-hour drive. It's a freezing cold day. It's pouring down rain. And I walk up to the car, and I'm looking at the car, and I go, something is off with the back window. This is the first day of 2018. Walk up to the car. Window's been smashed in. We have to drive six hours with the freezing cold rain just pouring. My poor brother's in the back seat going, like, I hate you. I hate you. And we're just driving. Also, in 2018, my, my brother almost died Twice. Twice. And then on top of that, in 2018, I broke my shoulder. First day of summer, pop off a bird scooter, boom, crack, gone. Don't ride those bird scooters. <laughs> and, and worst of all, as you all know, I, Chelsea and I lost our, our little baby in 2018. Now, that's one narrative. I can choose to be so dark and so pessimistic and say that 2018 is the worst year ever and say that I, 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 I can't. I'm so ready for it to be done, and that I'm, I'm wallowing in, in everything that happened to me, even though I have every right to. But there's a better story than that. There's a better narrative. The better narrative is I have never seen community come around me and my family uh, like 2018. 2018 taught me what it, what it means to live in communion what it means to live at the table. 
We received so much love from you guys. What an outpour of love. Our, our apartment was filled to the brim. I had to walk through it like this because of all the flowers that were in there. You can look at something full of darkness, full of negativity, full of awfulness, or you can choose to look at something full of light. To look at something in a way that actually comes It, it taught me what it means to actually accept help. It taught me what it means to actually live in community because we're so good at trying to believe this is all about me, 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 and I can do it. As Bobby's painting here, you can see the darkness in this person who's alone with just a lantern just to see what they can see with just a few footsteps in front of them. Here's the thing, guys. That's not only like just wrong, but it's dangerous, right? That's vulnerable. That's awful. We are not called to do this alone. We are called to live in communion, to live in a communal sense, to actually have support around us that can come in and add light to this whole, whole thing. It's not about self-help. It's not about you. There's a myth about self-help. It's really not true. You need others. You need others to help you around. You need others to actually take with you. There is a reason that in the story, he comes to the shepherds and not the shepherd. He comes to the magi, this group of people, and not just this one individual. We're called to do this together. Christ's whole thing, his whole prayer before he goes to be crucified, his prayer to God is, I just, if they could just be one. If they could just be one like we are and understand that they need each other, to understand that there is always more room at that end, to understand that if we do this together, we can do it better than we ever have alone. Let's pray. God, I'm, uh, I'm just so thankful for your story, for who you are, for the salvation that you offer in your son, Jesus Christ, for, um, just for the ability to celebrate this stuff. That this is a season that we've pulled so many narratives into, but we can always come back to the story. Amen.